Um, with that, um, we have Michael Langford from Arca, and then we have uh, Crystal Cantua. I hope I said everyone's name right. And um, she's from the New Mexico Brain Injury Resource Center. Um, so what we'd like to do is to know um, from Michael and Crystal, do you want questions popping up as people have them or would you like them to save until the end? Uh, we're actually gonna be doing a Q&A at the end. Okay. But definitely if they're coming in, if somebody will read those off to us as they come in, because we're gonna give you some information that's gonna trigger some questions, especially as you think about this case you just discussed. Perfect, okay. But so um, for the network, if you could just type your questions in the chat and I'll, I'll get them uh, when it's appropriate. And it's all yours, thank you. All right, thank you guys for uh, allowing us to give you guys some information. Also, we'd like to thank you for the services that you guys are doing. And uh, I, I sure appreciate it. Well, all right, we're gonna jump into and, and talk about brain injury. Um, uh, what In the industry, what we call a brain injury, we call it the solid epidemic. Um, and within the United States, and according to the World Health Organization, the brain injury will be one of the will be number one public health problem uh, within the world, uh, besides dealing with COVID at this time. Uh, but uh, brain injury is often called a sign of an epidemic because many of the problems that result in brain injuries, uh, folks don't they don't identify a brain injury uh, because the things that may change are cognitive issues or behavior issues. And if, as we have it within our state, if you don't have a good mechanism to diagnose a person with a brain injury, then we, we call it something else. And within our state, we tend to go straight toward mental health instead of dealing with a person with a brain injury. Uh, one of the biggest issues with the brain injury, if you get appropriate treatment at the appropriate time, and again, as you were talking about this gentleman, uh, the right doses of treatment, the right frequency of treatment, folks tend to do fairly well if that happens. Uh, but um, we have to have resources within our state to do those things. Again, when you have a person that is suffering with a TBI, um, a lot of the issues will, changes in their thinking, they might not already um, show those issues. The negative consequences of a brain injury, especially you guys have to deal with that process, especially within the general public, because those behavior challenges are going to come out. Communicating, understanding the world, folks don't understand that. It's like I woke up to a new person today. I have problems at work. I have problems at school. I am not the same guy or person in my, um, my personal relationships. You know, and when all those things start to snowball, then I am having problems at work, problems in my relationship. I may act out because of my behavior. And then guess what? I have legal problems after that point because I act out, because I am impulsive. 
is we're talking about, again, this patient, uh, the behaviors that you guys were discussing that this person exhibit, I would say this person had a frontal lobe brain injury due to the impulsivity, due to the explosive behaviors or aggression. I would, I would probably say 99% this person suffered a frontal, frontal, uh, frontal lobe injury. And then with a lot of our, uh, the folks that you guys serve, from a brain injury because I don't have my job, I don't have my family relationships, then what ends up happening, I become homeless because sometimes I forget to pay my bills and I get evicted. And now I'm on the street and I'm a vulnerable person on the street. So it, it tends to snowballs for these individuals. And I believe, and as I've been in uh, Albuquerque, over the last six years now, that I possibly believe that at least 60 to 75% of our individuals that are homeless, uh, either before homelessness and after, have suffered a brain injury. I, I totally believe that. Acquired brain injury, um, uh, acquired brain injury is, is huge now. Um, many years, we used to just talk about TBI. And that was kind of the buzzword when I started this many, many years ago. Now, acquired brain injury kind of lumps everything together. Um, and, um, you know, it doesn't occur at birth, so it's not a, a you know, folks uh, come out with a normal brain development, um, resultant change in neurological activity. Uh, and uh, so within acquired brain injury, um, you would have either one or two things. You would have an external force of the brain injury. That's either being hit in the head, that's been assaulted, but a blunt force to the brain. Uh, another thing, we have a internal assault to the brain. And we, we see a lot more people having that internal assault to the brain and dealing with uh, cancer patients now uh, because I got a tumor removed. And then that person ends up having a brain injury, a stroke. So those things will happen. One thing to consider, you guys, also with those internal insults as you think of your case study is toxic exposure and that supplementing medications on top of medications can also cause an increase to the effects of that brain injury as well. So keep that in the back of your head as you think of this individual. Well, and also, we, I was reading a study, due to the coronavirus, we're having more individuals having a lot of neurological deficits due to being having the coronavirus. So folks are recovering from the coronavirus, but now having some neurological deficits. So folks are coming up with having a brain injury now due to having the coronavirus. Um, what would determine the effects of a brain injury? Uh, the injury severity, if someone is uh, severely uh, impacted, that will talk about how a person is able to recover. The age. Uh, children bounce back from brain, uh, there's never a good brain injury, but children bounce back from brain injury. 
uh, because the brain is not as, as developed as folks that are older as I am, as my children would say, they diagnosed me with CTE because <laughs> I, used to play, I used to play football. So my, social, my great social worker doctor, uh, my great social worker daughter, she will tend to diagnose me. Uh, but if it makes her feel better, I'm all right with it. Uh, 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 alcohol, drug misuse, that will also uh, uh, hurt an individual on their rehab. Domestic violence, um, as we see someone being choked, someone being hit. Normally, if a person has been in a domestic violence situation, I would normally say that person would suffer a brain injury. Uh, military service, that blast injuries. A lot of our military service and veterans are coming back with that blast injury. Participating in sport and a person that is kind of, uh, and I would say that more toward the male population who've had several brain injuries due to um, uh, little front lobe issues in regards to not making the best decisions. Brain injury symptoms, as we discussed, uh, you, the cognitive systems, I'm not knowing what to do, not, you know, things just not right. I used to be able, I, you know, we worked with a lot of folks that were engineers and they're like, Michael, I used to put out all these things, uh, all these um, diagrams, and I, I have a hard time balancing my checkbook. Uh, and, and folks allow themselves to get real uh, frustrated with that. Um, the physical symptoms, um, um, you know, I, I'm not able to have the endurance as I used to. Perception, I, you know, I, I, I'm not able to uh, understand information that has been given to me. Or I'm not being, I'm not able, and Crystal will go over that in detail, uh, to express what I'm doing or how I'm feeling. And, uh, uh, we have a lot of difficulties with that. Behavioral and emotional symptoms. Uh, I'm treating my family not well. My children don't want to interact with me as much as they used to because they say, Daddy, you're a different person. And, you know, those things will happen. And these guys are having a hard time, especially if they don't have a team that is coaching or an environment that will, will help lead them to uh, a better outcome. Uh, understanding the brain injury, uh, a brain injury is the beginning of a chronic process. So for example, if I had high blood pressure, but I was kind of controlling it before I had my brain injury, uh, after my brain injury, my blood pressure will be out of control because um, just depending on where I'm hitting my brain, then I will continue to have difficulties. A brain injury can cause an onset of diseases, okay, because my immune system is being messed with. Uh, everything is new to an, a survivor with a brain injury. It's, you know, uh, it's not as worse as 50 worst, uh, what is that movie, 50 first dates? Uh, but a lot of time with some of these folks, especially with the impact of their brain injury. It's a new day every day, and it's a struggle every day. Uh, daily living activities, I'm, you know, when you have to teach 
an individual who's 50 years old and you're trying to teach him or her to, you know, take care of themselves with toileting and eating. But I kind of remember that I used to do that. And I used to do that very well, but now I can't. And again, without the, the right supports, an individual with a brain injury will lead straight to depression. I mean, but we will not look at the brain injury. We would just say, oh, this person's depressed. Yes, I'm depressed because I've, had, I've not had the appropriate services to deal with my brain injury. So yes, I'm gonna become depressed. Um, they have cognitive deficits. And that is the biggest, that is the biggest challenge that you guys will have to do in dealing with an individual with a brain injury. It doesn't mean that they're not capable of reasoning. And I always tell people that just because a person has suffered a brain injury does not mean they lose IQ points. I'm still smart as I can get but I just don't understand or I don't use my information in the most appropriate manner. Um, uh, behavioral and emotional management is a challenge. You got mood swings. As you, as you guys talked about earlier, uh, yes, you guys, are the doctor, uh, the unit, uh, most of these folks will utilize they will figure out if I say I'm going to hurt somebody, I'm going to hurt myself, I'm going to get attention. A person with a brain injury is looking for attention because attention means help because I can't get it the right way. When we worked with the folks that we have in our program, I, I talked to the staff, I say, well, they're going to get your attention one way or the other. So let's be positive and help them get to your attention because if you don't they will act out to get your attention and i'm sorry to say majority of the time you guys get that acting out behavior because someone before you did not plant that positive seed to help that individual move on with their behavior um uh physical thank you uh, go ahead, Crystal. Sorry. Sorry, did I jump ahead, boss? No, just, it's all right. The physical functions uh, can be uh, a real trauma in an individual's life of the injury. Uh, just because I'm not, I'm not able to walk, I'm having some physical deficits. Um, I, I, and, it, and again, if they're not in the most right environment of treating a person with a brain injury, Sometimes we make things worse because we're, we're, we're worrying about treating them differently. And I have one quick story and I'll let Crystal get started. I went to evaluate a young lady. She suffered a brain injury, but in her community, they didn't have brain injury services, but they had a school for the blind. Okay, when I went to evaluate this young lady, um, she walked around, she acted like because Everybody in her environment was blind. And she would bump into things. She walked with her eyes closed. She used a cane. And uh, when I evaluate her and I ask her to open my eyes, she goes, I can see. But, I, but she, because of the environment she was in, she adapted to that environment. So 
she act blind. So a person with a brain injury will adapt to their environment. And a lot of the times the environment is not very positive. And, and as you guys can see with this individual you talked about earlier, um, he may be gaining respect by having extra Xanax. He may be stabilizing himself with that Xanax because the world around him doesn't understand. And so one thing that we see very commonly with brain injury is the impact that it does have on communication and individuals not being able uh, to articulate what they need or what they want and impulsivity coming into play. What happens there is those threats, those threats of violence that are often mistaken for, for um, actual gestures when really they might just be screaming, I need some attention here and can somebody understand me to help me? Um, and when you look at physical symptoms, when you look at emotional symptoms, behavioral symptoms, a lot of times what happens here is because we don't have the history of the brain injury and a lot of times, I mean, in this case, one, one red flag that goes up for me is physical abuse. And how long did this individual endure that abuse? And the lack of communication from the family, from the individual, from the medical system itself, um, it becomes a big problem when dealing with brain injury. A lot of people are going to experience more than one form of communication problems following a brain injury. And it does depend on the area um, of the brain that's affected and the severity of the brain injury, but I will tell you, uh, I think it's about 76% of all brain injuries are mild brain injuries where there's not a loss of consciousness. And I will tell you from the individuals that I help support, and I, I've worked with CIT, I've known Officer Svedra for years um, in working with these guys one of the things that I see is the most challenging brain injury that you guys are faced with is this mild brain injury. And often this is the brain injury that you're not going to have that background data on. There isn't a scan that shows you the impact and there are going to be issues of homelessness. There's going to be issues within the family. Um, and so having this individual in his own environment right now is definitely something you want to keep intact and make those connections within his team, so to speak. You've got to make a team out of nothing. Unfortunately, for individuals with brain injury living in New Mexico, we don't have concrete services for them. And it does require the communication of us frontline workers, um, service providers, to make sure that we're, we're kind of doing a warm handoff with each other. And so collaboration is a must. Um, not only are they going to have these impacts in communication, but those kind of bleed into all different areas in a person's life. There's language impairments, often called dysphagia or aphasia. This is where a person may not understand language. They may not understand um, Xanax. Xanax may be a thing of respect rather than a tool to assist. They may feel um, comfortable within that dose, but not realize that something like Depakote may manage the 
complex partial seizures along with the behavior that is very rarely used, not the best line of drug from my point of view, but definitely something that doesn't have those addictive traits behind it. People have speech difficulties when dealing with individuals involved with law enforcement as anxiety goes up, speech goes down, comprehension goes down. And so that makes it look to you guys that maybe they are in an addictive state of mind, maybe they are intoxicated in some way, shape or form. Um, and that question of, okay, let's do a breathalyzer, let's check these levels, is going to increase the behaviors that you're going to see because they know who they are. They know what they have done. And oftentimes I hear individuals with brain injuries telling me, I'm in here. I just don't come out, out there the way I want to. And so when there's a cognitive deficit, let's say, let's say it's in the eyes, right? And you take this individual to the optometrist to fix those eyes and the way he's seen blurry, the optometrist isn't going to find a deficit in the function of those eyes because it goes back into a processing system. The cognitive functional abilities of the eyes themselves take that same individual to a neuro-ophthalmologist and you might get a better outcome with what's going on behind the eyes. And so getting the appropriate services to help this individual is imperative. Um, cognitive communication difficulties result in dysfunction in memory, attention. It takes away from their social skills um, and just the cognitive ability behind communicating. You guys sitting there right now just hearing us in this presentation, thinking about this individual, your attention is going from several different components as you're also processing and using different metacognitive abilities to just sit through this webinar. Um, for a person who has these deficits, it becomes the biggest challenge ever. Uh, it's it's, it's kind of like a complete loss of control. So they will try and gain that control in any way, shape or form. Um, there are several different types of communication deficits. I talked a little bit about dysphagia a minute ago. Um, when you think of impairments to language, you've got to think about receptive as well as expressive language. Now, it's very easy for us to recognize this in expressive language. We hear it, right? We can see this happening in front of us. It's the receptive language that makes it a little more difficult for us to understand. We can't gauge what the person's understanding is. And that's where we got to really build a rapport for the individuals we deal with with brain injury, getting them into the appropriate neuropsyche valves so we can see where that functioning is and then build supports around where they're at. Um, I loved one of the comments I heard earlier, we got to take them right where, where they're at. And when we do that, we can empower them, build some social valued roles for them and really give them that person-centered approach that you're always gonna have a better outcome if you can empower the individual because they've lost everything. They functioned in one way, they could have been Romeo out there on the streets and suddenly they're not as attractive. Suddenly they recognize their deficits and the world around them presses down on them within these deficits um, and we may not see that 
there's, there's kind of a curtain that hides it from us, but they no longer have filters the way that you and I do to discern um, what to say and what not to say. There's dysarthia, which is a speech disorder caused by a disturbance of muscle control and the way we sound out our speech. When this happens, a person's ability to speak is impaired. They, they tend to slur, they tend to pull words, I call it word soup. They tend to pull words or um, they may even look like they have uh, Bell's palsy where one side of the face might have a little bit of a droop. We see this often with um, individuals that survive strokes, which is something we're all very much aware of. Then you get dyspraxia, which is an uh, impairment in the ability to coordinate and the sequence of muscle movements into speech, the way your tongue lifts, the way your, your lips move, the way that sound comes off of you. Um, and this is something that I get a lot of individuals involved in the judicial system as a result of being intoxicated. Only that impulsivity that they lack, they tend to strike at an officer and now you got several different charges against somebody who may have been dealing with one of these speech difficulties. <clears throat> a big thing to look at is the frontal lobe, which are very important um, for cognitive communication skills. They, the frontal lobe, and this is where Michael picked up on this individual earlier, he had to have been struck in the front of the head. When you get struck in front of the head, what happens is your brain sits in a sack of water, okay? It's engulfed in this water sack, protected from infection with your meninges, and it's located inside a skull that has crevices and edges. When a person gets hit in their frontal lobe, well, that, that brain kind of swings back in that sack of water and you get it swinging against the back of the head here. This is your coupe contra coupe effect. And this tends to kind of sway that brain back and forth and it stretches and breaks those connections within the brain causing rather than a focal injury where it's just one point, can actually cause what we know uh, as a diffused anoxal injury. And when this happens, the neurons stretch and break and, and that the impact of that injury is a little more wi widespread than a person that has something like a stroke. But it does um, affect organization, flexible thinking, the way we see ourselves, um, the way we think about our thinking, all of those metacognitive processes that we have that for me and you may be just a natural occurrence um, as we move through life. It creates memory challenges with forgetfulness, difficulty retaining new information. And so as you work with these folks, I think about this individual and it's not gonna take one time talking to him about alternative medications. I am gonna have to put charts in front of him and work with him consistently for weeks on end to get him to buy in. Um, it takes a person with a brain injury a longer time to process information as well as generate a response because we have societal pressures on us and a person may still have that intact. They may be quick to fire off that threat. That may be their only form of protection that they have as they move through the world. And so when dealing with these folks, it's very important 
to kind of think outside the box with them. Um, it is a big challenge for them just to wake up in the morning. If you have an individual with a brain injury moving from one place to the other, couch surfing from here to there, we're dealing with a person that's feeling pretty unsafe all the time. Um, and that's your basic human needs. If you think of Maslow's hierarchy of need, we're taking that person down uh, to survival skills. And, and that's what me and Michael see a lot of is individuals moving through the metro area, through New Mexico in general, uh, based on survival skills. Um, they have difficulty with planning. There's a lot of disorganization. Um, it's good for this individual to have probation and parole on board because that kind of keeps him consistent. Um, hopefully, his appointments are on the same day at the same time every week. Otherwise, he's going to miss those appointments and he's going to have other charges against him or he'll be sent back in. Uh, and, and this is something I see frequently is I have a couple of individuals that I work with that are frequent flyers, repeat offenders, um, and I see a lot of recidivism because they, the routine in jail is a whole lot easier to function in than being out on the streets and having to make those decisions because they don't have the cognitive skill set in which to move through those maneuvers that we do so simply every day. You know, Crystal has said something that is pretty profound, is that structure and routine, an individual that has a brain injury, uh, they may not like it, but they love structure and routine. And as she talked about being incarcerated, somebody's telling you what to do, when to do it, how to do it. And, you know, and I, I feel more comfortable in that. I, I was working with a gentleman and it was, we were going through the summer and it was about to be winter time. And he goes, Michael, I said, yes. He goes, I, I, I'm about to go to jail. I was like, what, you made an appointment to go to jail? He goes, no, I'm going to do something so I can go to jail. So when the winter comes, I can be in jail. But that was his problem solving to what the situation that he was going in was that I'm going to go commit a crime so I can go to jail. I can get three hot, three hots and a gut. And, but to him, that was a good, that was a good option. Now we taught him some other, some other tools. Cause I, you know, to me, I was like, well, that's not your best option, but, but people do the best they can with the information that they have. And it does. I mean, it, I mean, when a person has a brain injury and you have those difficulties in thought process, you, you need somebody. I mean, granted, I will tell you, they will push against it because they need to be in control like the rest of us. Nobody told you guys what to wear today or how to get here. We have new people on, the, uh, on this Echo because they chose to be here. None of us as adults want to be told what to do. Shoot, my teenager doesn't want to be told what to do. And so it's building a person up and giving them the new information so they can get out of their stuck thought process, so they can be empowered um, and, and have that value grow. And one thing I love about behavior is it communicates a lot to us. Behavior is telling you what they want, what they don't want, what they need, what they don't need, um, who, who they're impacted from, who they like. Um, and, and granted, sometimes it plays opposite. You know, I would be interested to see putting Officer Sabedra back in play just a little bit with this individual 
to have the conversation about his medication because it may trigger that connection that, okay, he's still around, things are safe to a point, and slowly build the rapport with this individual because they, they are going to have challenges with adapting to new ideas. Those complex ideas are very difficult for them, and they do take a longer time to adapt. Most people, when they do an intake with an individual, kind of schedule an hour intake. When I do an intake with a person with a brain injury, I'm looking at two hours. I give, I give my schedule three because of these deficits that I'm going to see. Um, there's difficulties with initiation, following through with tasks, starting a task. Um, it just it, it looks like a mountain to decide to change my medication. I may be educated enough to go and find information, or it may be a life experience where I've been put on a medication before, it went south, I have all these challenges as a result, and maybe I did strike out against somebody I love, maybe I did make a bad decision in that process, and I have that memory because what fires, wires. And so by giving good information, we can, we can teach a person how to control their impulses, how to work within the tolerance. And it's getting outside the box. Um, I talk to family members all the time, and, and I say coping skills are the hardest skill to teach because we don't all come with good coping skills. And we really got to push and, and be willing to get that help and work together in a non-judgmental way. Um, you, you guys are dealing with individuals who already have that conflict in play. And so there's a lot more time in building the rapport than somebody in my role where they're actually walking into my office ready for the help. Um, there's some social communication deficits that you're going to see with these folks. There's a lot of poor eye contact, um, and it looks a little, I, I call it the beady eye look, um, and I often tell individuals, it's okay, you, you don't have to look at me. Um, especially in New Mexico, I think culturally we're taught, look at me when I'm talking to you, and it creates just this, this barrier in communication. A lot of folks with brain injury jump from one subject to another. They have difficulty um, waiting for their turn to talk. They tend to interject really fast, and you're jumping from five different conversations, and it's up to us as the professional to kind of follow it, see where it's going, and, and that's how you're going to get more information from the individual. I ask little questions along the way to kind of open up my mind to see what's going on. Um, perseveration, once an individual with the brain injury gets stuck on what they want, and I, I think we see this with this individual we talked about earlier, they're gonna persevere on that. Somebody takes me off of this, I'm gonna die, my life's gonna suck. We, I mean, the heroin is really just a tool to keep you guys engaged. He's saying, hey, if you're not here, I'm gonna do this because in all reality, he needs you. In all reality, you guys make the world a safer place because if I'm involved with you, I know I don't end up dead on the streets because my family don't care, I got nowhere to live, and here's what I need. And so always keep that in the back of your mind because there is challenges that these individuals go through that is really put in play to keep us engaged. Otherwise, they fall through the cracks and they don't get the supports and services they need. Um, 
And let's see, I think hopefully you guys read through the communication deficits here. Those are pretty common uh, with individuals. I mean, if I'm a police officer and I, I have somebody leaning into me, that, that kind of takes away from the matrix I, matrix I was taught. I, I'm going to be uncomfortable with that. So simply knowing this individual has a brain injury, we may want to kind of just de-escalate ourselves a little bit and, and be prepared for that. One thing that helps me, because I do get these individuals into my office and often I'm alone um, in the office with this in individual. And so one thing I've learned how to do that's real helpful is I step in actually. I step a little closer, I lean in a little bit more. Um, and that tends to step them back from you. And so there's some strategies for you guys to use to keep yourself safe um, as you move through the world in these very challenging situation. Um, to help a person with their expressive communication, give them time to respond. Um, sometimes, you know, you guys got your radios going on and things happening over here, and, and there's that alert that you have to be on. Try and minimize that a little bit. That way they can have the opportunity uh, to want to share. Encourage all those attempts at communication. And so I used to have a guy that used to say, um, that stuff's so gay. And I, I would have to engage him and say, okay, what do you mean by that? So what does it mean that that staff is so gay? Is it that they're happy all the time? And, and he would say, no, they wear their socks up to their knees and who wears white socks with black shoes? That's wrong. And it was just the way he perceived the world. But by engaging that, I was able to kind of de-escalate how the staff felt about that situation. And so you've got to think about that. Um, don't interrupt the answer of the person. They may tell you things that you don't want to hear, and often that's it. They use uh, a lot of cuss words sometimes. Um, and I always remember that when a person uses foul language like that, it's just a way to communicate that they're hurting, that they're upset, that they're not feeling safe. Um, but it's usually a secondary attempt at getting their emotions heard, their needs met. Um, offer offer choices and questions to the person. One thing you don't want to do, though, with a person with a brain injury, don't offer more than two options. Um, try and get them to come up with their own options. What's a better solution to this? And this is one thing I saw Michael do when engaging this individual about jail. He came up with his own, own solutions. You know, we just give him the information. And a lot of times a person can get there that just takes a little extra time. Um, always look for the meaning behind the communication. Don't assume that he, he wants to hurt you guys. Um, that's not what I hear at all, but rather where can I get some more support here? Because out there, there's nobody and everybody I encounter out there, I mean, picks up on the deficits that I have and target me. I'm a moving target on the street when I have a brain injury and I'm more susceptible to violence, and I'm following my first injury, I am three times more likely to have a second one. Following that second injury, I am eight times more likely to have a third one. And so keep that in mind as you assist a person with expressing themselves to help them understand a little bit better. Uh, take away the background noise. 
take away, and when I say background noise, it's not what's going on behind me, it's what's going on around me, right? A lot of times I know um, it feels safer to be outside of an environment when dealing with an individual. I actually bring individuals in closer, I'll even turn off the lights, because processing the, the lights in my office can be treacherous for somebody with a brain injury. Um, speak naturally and clearly. Um, we don't need to demean them or baby them in any way. It's, it's finding their style of communication and utilizing that style of communication. Um, there's times that I see a person go sad. I am going to kind of make that eye contact and, and ensure I have the understanding they need me to have and they give that same, they kind of reciprocate that to me. They're learning from you every step of the way. You want to speak in short, simple sentences, maybe even uh, paraphrase or rephrase something that you've said that a person may not understand to clarify it for them. Talk about events, objects, and people that are in the here and now. Past and future are scary for a person with a brain injury. And that's where that person, that perseverance comes from. And I see it with this individual you guys brought up earlier. You don't wanna change topics too quickly for these folks. Um, let them, if they change topics, you, you stay on track with it. But you wanna kind of try and bring them back to the idea of, okay, we're talking about your medications here. Um, be aware that a person is going to understand better when they're calm when they are not escalated, when they have had something good to eat and a good night's rest. Uh, one of the most difficult brain injuries you will ever work with is a brain injury that is tired or hungry. Um, that's a basic human need and you don't get the appropriate functioning that you need, um, that you need from that individual to comprehend what you're asking them to process. Now, there are several resources for you guys here in New Mexico. Um, I wish I had a bigger list to give you. I'm not gonna get into a lot of clinical areas. Um, if you ever need resources on rehab programs or anything like that, um, don't hesitate. My information will be there for you guys a little bit later. Um, but you can always call me and I'll kind of help you brainstorm what we can do to help these individuals. Um, I get calls on a regular basis to say, okay, what can we do here? In New Mexico, we have what's called the Brain Injury Service Fund and a little bit of background since I got police officers on board here. Brain Injury Service Fund is funded through a $5, uh, $5 amount that gets given to the fund from every moving violation. And so since removing the red light tra traffic cameras, this fund has dropped drastically um, in the past five to seven years. And so thank you guys for issuing those citations. I know my daughter won't like it, but I know a lot of New Mexicans benefit from this brain injury service fund. And, you know, we have a long ways to go in the state to educate even those providers that are working with these individuals until you walk with it, until you travel alongside somebody who has had it. Brain injury will always be a silent epidemic. And it is something that I've never met the same two brain injuries twice 
there isn't a concrete that I can give you. This, this, and this is gonna happen with this. Um, and so your brain is your motherboard. You have so many different connections and transmitters that come into play that it's hard for us. Research just started in 2006. States were mandated to do surveillance. And we have some great research teams. We've got some great docs. We've got some great organizations that are pulling together to try and create services here in New Mexico. But it is gonna take the effort of all of us and understanding what kind of drives these services. Now, the Brain Injury Service Fund is only gonna be available to individuals. It's not an income-based type program. It's only available to individuals who are not covered by Medicaid. And that's full Medicaid. So if you deal with somebody who has Medicare, Medicaid, they may be eligible for this fund. One thing that has to be there is a brain injury diagnosis. And as you can see with the case study, those are far and few in between. And so I really encourage you guys, as I think of the individual, uh, get a neuropsych eval done and see, don't call it an assessment, because um, that kind of steers people away, but that may be able to give you more insight as to where that functioning is. And a neuropsychologist may be able to provide that diagnosis, but without that, they wouldn't qualify for Brain Injury Service Fund. Okay, I work with the New Mexico Brain Injury Resource Center, um, and I connect people to resources across the state. Um, and sometimes even in other states or transition them from other states into our state. I do a lot of outreach. I do a lot of collaboration and I like to connect organizations uh, to better support the roles that you guys have and give you the information that's needed to support those with brain injury. You can give, contact me at the Burke anytime. That number is there and it will come up again. Um, COVID has shut down the Resource Center, but we are located at 1503 4th Street Northwest. Um, I'm right downtown. I'm in the middle of the midst of everything, and I work very closely with the New Mexico Coalition to End Homelessness, um, Albuquerque Housing Authority, um, gosh, St. Martin's, uh, MDC, the West Side Shelter. I work with almost any and all community entities that are willing to kind of lock elbows with me and build this from the ground up. You have the New Mexico Brain Injury Alliance, um, and, and they also help individuals working, living within our community um, who are survivors of brain injury. Uh, we collaborate with Dr. Pedrati quite a bit. He serves a lot of children in the state of New Mexico and does some wonderful work um, in creating services and concussion clinics and things like that for kids because as officers you're dealing with a lot of children who are now adults who haven't had that support or service in their life and they go through those transitional periods and, and there goes everything they 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 become repeat offenders, they become our drug addicts, they become those individuals involved with the legal system. You get the New Mexico Brain Injury Advisory Council. Now this organization sits under the New Mexico uh, Governor's Commission on Disability, and they actually push to change legislation. They bring a program 
um, into play. They do a lot of surveillance type studies, things like that, work with different community entities to bring those into play. But they have a free children's helmet program and they go to a lot of these bike rodeos that you see happening at the schools. Um, and it's more preventative precautions that they work on and legislation that they work on in terms of funding. Now, there's some national resources and I've included links here. You guys are gonna get a printout of the presentation today. And so feel free to look up any of those. There's great, um, great resources, information sheets, things like that. I know I sent Maria some handouts that I want you guys to have in your inbox. She'll be sending you those out, putting them into the chat so you guys can kind of click and print those. Um, one thing I haven't sent Maria that I will send you is a comparison chart. I have a comparison chart that will take things like stress, brain injury, PTSD, and put it on a form for you guys to see what the difference in that is. And, and kind of open your eyes to how parallel all of these work together. Now I'm gonna go ahead and open it up to any questions people might have. I know I saw some stuff going through the chat, but feel free.